Good morning and welcome to Harvest. If you're new with us today, my name is Jordan. I'm part of the staff team here and have the privilege of opening up God's Word for us as we reflect on and remember the reality of Jesus Christ crucified for us uh, this Good Friday. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I'd love it if you turned in it to the Gospel of John chapter 17 as we continue our look this morning at the prayer, the last prayer that Jesus prays to the Father, which we have called the most powerful prayer ever prayed because in reality, that's what it is. And we'll look to uh, verses 6 to 13 together uh, this morning in just a moment. The essence of of any good magic show, the essence of any good illusionist or mystery story is in the big reveal. It's in the moment when the performer on stage reveals the trick that he or she has mastered, which leaves the audience in awe. It's in the moment in the story when seemingly out of nowhere, a new detail is revealed that changes the entire plot line and leaves everyone on the edge of their seat. A good reveal leaves the audience in wonder, trying to wrap their minds around what possibly could have happened, what possibly could come next. As Jesus prays to his Father in John chapter 17, he reveals his purpose. He reveals the reason for his coming. He reveals the why behind his death, the why that sent him to the cross to give up his life, the climax of his earthly mission. But unlike magicians or illusionists, authors or screenwriters, Jesus' reveal leaves nothing for us to misunderstand. It leaves nothing for us to speculate about. Because in this most powerful prayer ever prayed, before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be betrayed, unjustly accused and tried, beaten, mocked, scorned, spat upon, his hands and feet nailed to a cross where he would hang and die for you and for me, Jesus reveals his purpose. And in doing so, he revealed the purpose of the lives of his disciples who were the primary hearers and recipients of this prayer. And in doing so, by extension, Jesus reveals, Jesus' prayer reveals his purpose for me in that we see the wonderful realities that are ours in Him, if we're truly His. If the realities of the crucifixion are truly ours. Let's turn our attention to the text now, John chapter 17, verses 6 through 13. Follow along with me as I read God's words to us this morning. Jesus Christ prays, I have magnified your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world. They are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' prayer, this final prayer before he would go to the cross, reveals his purpose for me, for my life, for your life. We're building a statement here together this morning as we seek to understand how these words reveal the purpose for our lives. And the first thing that we see Jesus pray for is this, that I may know his gospel, that I may know the reality of who he is and what he's done and why he came. Verse 6 really acts as a summary statement for us of the entirety of Jesus' life, mission, and earthly ministry as he turns his eyes toward heaven, looks toward the Father, and prays. He says this, I have manifested your name to the people. This is the reason that Jesus Christ was sent. He came to this earth to make known the name of God to the people and not the name of God in terms of what we would call him, but the name of God in terms of his very nature, his character, his power, the full reality of who he is. Jesus Christ made the father clearly visible to us in all that he said and did. That's what manifested your name means. And the author of the book of Hebrews gets to the heart of, of just how amazing this is. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And here it is. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. I mean, this is, this is the game-changing moment in all of history. This is God's own big reveal of his salvation plan for all of humanity, that, that the incarnation would occur, that God would come down in the flesh, and he would no longer be something that we simply hear about, but he can be something tangibly seen. Isn't it, is it not true that there's something decidedly different between the, the seeing, the, the experiencing with your own two eyes as opposed to just hearing it from someone else? Is it not true that when you get the opportunity to experience something, it is far more significant than if somebody just told you about it? I'm sure you have experiences like that. For me, one of the most tangible and significant ones was I'd heard all about the majesty, the wonder, the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia. I'd seen pictures, I'd watched videos, I'd studied them. There's nothing compared to standing at the bottom of one of those mountains, looking up to see how massive they are. It was nothing compared to standing at the peak of one of them, looking out at the other snow-covered peaks that seemed to go on forever. 
Seeing is different than hearing. And in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we see the full reality of the nature of God and that crashes into our reality and disrupts every part of who we are if we truly receive it, but not everyone will. People Jesus came to manifest the nature of God to are, verse 6, the people whom you, the Father, gave me, Jesus, out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. The only reason that any of us can receive what Jesus has come to reveal to us is because before anything else, we belong to God. The scriptures record for us in Romans 8 and in Ephesians chapter 1 that that before the earth was formed, God predestined those who would receive the revelation of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God chose you, current follower of Jesus. God chose you, soon to be follower of Jesus, not because of anything that you could have done, but by virtue of his own goodness and grace. Because he is a merciful God. Before you would ever respond to the call of salvation in faith, you belong to God. He gave you as a gift to the Son, Jesus Christ, to be faithfully, completely, and eternally taken care of. The Heidelberg Catechism illustrates this well for us. What is my only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an incredible truth and comfort to us. This is a critical contrast that that must be made between the gospel of Jesus Christ and our individualistic, autonomous world that we live in today. In Christ, we are not our own. We are not the world's. We belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to God the Father. If we do belong to Jesus... And if he has revealed the Father to us, then we get the incredible blessing of knowing some incredible realities about who Jesus is. Look back down at verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Remember, the disciples, the the 11 disciples were the primary recipients and hearers of of this prayer. Because of of their time with Jesus, because of the, the things that he revealed to them, they now know these incredible realities about who he is. They know, and like the disciples, we can now know that Jesus Christ came from God. That the words that he spoke while he was here were given to him by the Father. 
We can know that all the authority and purpose and strength that he had while he was here came from the heavenly father who sent him as the son was completely dependent on the father during his time here on this earth. And listen, if the son, if our savior, if our crucified king was completely dependent on the father while he was here on earth, so should we if we're his. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something to simply be believed with blind faith. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. The truths of this gospel impact every part of who we are, body, soul, and mind. And when it is truly known when the truths about who Jesus is and who he revealed and what he said and what he did are truly known and received, it leads to the only appropriate response, which is twofold. We see at the ends of verses six and verse eight, verse six first, Jesus tells the father that his disciples have kept your word. They have kept your word, Jesus says. Now, if you spent any time reading the gospels, looking at the interactions between Jesus and his disciples, you would know that this is a very generous description Jesus gives of his followers. Really, Jesus, these guys kept your word? Now, while it's most certainly true that the disciples were not and would not be completely consistent in their following of Jesus, he knew their hearts. He knew that they trusted in him that they obeyed him. After all, I mean, they had abandoned everything else in their lives to follow him. The apostle Peter speaking on, on the behalf of all of the disciples in John chapter six, when Jesus asks them, are you going to leave too? He says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They didn't have it all figured out. Even at the time that Jesus is praying here, as they're hearing the words he's praying to the Father, they didn't have it all figured out then. They could not know the realities of what was coming fully in the few hours that would follow Jesus' prayer. Peter himself, who makes this incredible declaration, would deny his Lord and Savior three times before he was crucified. They didn't have it all figured out, but what they did know was enough for them. And so, verse 8, they have believed that you sent me. The disciples knew and they believed. And you can too today. Is what Jesus Christ prayed about his disciples in these first few verses of our passage today true of you? Do you see who he is? Do you see who he revealed? Do you know these truths? Will you receive and believe them? Jesus' purpose in praying for me is that I would know his gospel and believe it. And if I do, I will see this next, join his family. I'll join his family. 
Verse 9 marks, marks a transition in, in Jesus' prayer as he moves from, from talking about the work that he's completed to now clarifying who he is and isn't praying for. Check, check it out. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them, Jesus says. All, all the, the things that describe the, the people that, that I've, the things that I just said, the people that are described by those things, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Now, that, that first part of the prayer can seem a little bit jarring to us. What do you mean you're not praying for the world, Jesus? I know John 3.16, I know it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So what do you mean you're not praying for the world? Well, in the gospel of John, the, the world is not a reference to individual people, but instead it refers to the sinful, sin-affected human society in general that is opposed to God and by extension opposed to Jesus, who he is, what he did and said, I'm not praying for that, Jesus says, but I'm praying for those who have come out of that world. I'm praying for those whom, whom the Lord, the Father, has given me out of that world. His crucifixion most certainly is available to all, but not all will receive it. Jesus is praying for those who will receive it, for the Lord has taken them out of the world, given them to Christ, for they are yours, Jesus says. And interestingly enough, this is the third time Jesus uses this phrase to refer to this group that, that he's talking about here. He's praying for God's chosen people. He's praying for those whom God gave to the Son to bring salvation to. He's praying for all those throughout history who would, as Romans 10 verse 9 says, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Jesus is not praying for all people. He's praying for his people, those in whom he shares with the Father. All mine are yours and yours are mine, he says in verse 10, and I am glorified in them. He's praying for for his people specifically, those who are part of his family, and he prays specifically for two things for them. First thing he prays for, we see in verse 11, and before we see what he prays for, we need to stop and see how he addresses God first. He calls God Holy Father, a title that's only used here in all of Scripture, but gives us an incredible picture of the reality of the nature of God. Pastor Todd talked last week about the reality of God as our Father, the fact that He is loving and caring and tender, and He he wants His people to come and chat with Him. And in here, we see the other side of it. We see Jesus call His Father, Holy Father, referring to the fact that our God is other. He is set apart. He is holy. He is truly transcendent, while at the same time, he is loving and caring and near to us as a perfect father. Jesus prays that his holy father would, you see it in verse 11, keep them, keep us in your name, which you have given to me. He's saying, Father, by the full reality of your awesomeness, your holiness, your strength, your wisdom, your majesty, your might, protect our people in my absence. It's an amazing and comforting reality for us as the part of the people of God. If you're a part of the family of God, Jesus prays for your protection. And listen now, you are protected by a God with an infinite ability to protect you. Let's tease this out a little bit more. When our our kids are frightened, what do they do? 
They run to you, don't they? They run to you as as their parent. They run to a trusted adult. Why? Because they know that you have the capacity to keep them, to protect them from whatever it is that's frightening them. And in the same way for us as the people of God, as the family of God, like our children run to us for protection, we can run to the Father for protection from the dangers of the evil of this world because we are a part of the family of the Holy Father. Because He is our, as as Psalm 46 verse 1 says, refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Jesus prays that we would be protected as his people, as his family. Secondly, he prays that the Father would unite us. He says that they may be one even as we are one. Notice that the basis for the unity that Jesus prays for is the unity that exists in the Trinity. If you've never heard this word Trinity before, it's, it's a, a core understanding of who we understand God to be, that our God is three in one, triune. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one God with one nature and character. And there exists perfect unity amongst the members of our triune God in all that they are and do for all of eternity. And Jesus prays here that we, his people, his family, by virtue of his gospel, would be united together in the same unity that exists between him and the Father. A truly remarkable thing to pray, especially given the reality of the division and disunity that exists in our world and in churches today. Seems everywhere we look, Christians and churches are divided and brutal toward one another. You see it all over social media. If we're a part of the family of God, if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been called to link arms together with one another, with those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was sent to proclaim the words of God and reveal the nature of God to us. And he, Jesus, has been given a mission to make salvation possible to those who know and receive and believe in who he is, to call people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation into himself to welcome those who were once his enemies to adopt those who were once fatherless and familyness into his family as sons and daughters and to be united under the word of God which is our ultimate authority with the kind of unity that exists between him and the father listen this grows not by our own effort we know that for sure don't we only way this kind of unity can grow is because of a gift of God's grace. One Bible commentator wrote about this unity in this way, saying the unity prayed for is a unity already given. Jesus does not pray that they may become one, but that they may be continually one. As unity exists perfectly in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not just perfectly, as unity exists in our God eternally, So we are welcomed into the pre-existing unity with fellow believers when we come into his family, so we must act like it. I 
Jesus' purpose for me in his coming and in his final prayer before he would go to the cross for me is, is that I would get over petty and insignificant differences. I would resolve issues with brothers and sisters in Christ quickly. That amongst churches and believers who agree on areas of primary theological and doctrinal importance, we would be willing to get over issues of secondary or tertiary importance. Instead of bickering about things that ultimately don't matter, we would seek to cultivate loving unity as those loved and saved and protected by our Holy Father by virtue of the gospel that, of Jesus Christ, his son, whom he sent, because we live in a world that so desperately needs to hear the message that we've been given to proclaim, and we disqualify ourselves from proclaiming that message when we break the unity that we have been given. hard. I get it. It's way easier said than done. But when we fully understand and when we fully get this next part, it becomes easier. Because Jesus's purpose in coming was to deal with the greatest problem that we have as human beings. His purpose for me is that I would be free from sin. If you've been around church for a while, you you probably are thinking to yourself right now, this really isn't a traditional Good Friday message. We've only briefly talked about and looked at the cross and Jesus' crucifixion, his sacrifice on our behalf. But here in, in what Jesus prays next, we come face to face with that reality. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. While Jesus was with his disciples, he kept them. He protected them by the power of God, which was given to them. He, he shielded them from evil like a good shepherd who never loses his sheep. And in some senses, I kind of wish that there was a period there and it didn't go on, but it does Scriptures record there was one that was lost. Now, let me make very clear, this one was lost not because Jesus could not protect him, not because Jesus did not have the ability to save him, but because he was never truly a part of the people of God that the Lord had given Jesus to protect. He was never a part of the flock. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Son of destruction that Jesus refers to here is Judas Iscariot. One of the 12 disciples who would betray him just a few short moments after he concludes this prayer. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was the first domino to fall in the line of the crucifixion of the son of God. He gave up the savior of the world for pocket change. It's an interesting thing to consider that that Judas was was one handpicked by Jesus to follow him most closely, and he was the one who betrayed him. But it gets to the reality of the depth of evil and the real 
tangible reality of sin in our lives and this world and the reason that Jesus Christ came and had to die as he did. Because Judas heard all that Jesus said. Judas saw all the incredible miracles that Jesus performed. And yet his heart was still so affected by sin, his affection still so given to the world that he didn't truly see, know, receive, or believe the reality of who Jesus was and what he proclaimed. And Judas's existence and actions prove the reality for us of Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick Who can understand it? Our greatest problem, my greatest problem, your greatest problem, every single person's greatest problem sitting here today is in our most natural state, we're like Judas. We're consumed with our own prideful, sinful desires. We're enemies of God, naturally, in all that we are and do. We, naturally, are sons and daughters of destruction, just like Judas was, because Romans 3.23 says it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is exempt from this. So we have no room to judge Judas for what he did, because we were all once like him, or some of you here today are still like him. But Jesus offers a way for that to change. Because as we continue, we'll read the shockingly hopeful truth that what Jesus or what Judas did was not outside of the sovereignty of God. It was done, verse 12, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas's betrayal fulfilled a, prophe- a pro- prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus would arrive on scene in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And reading this, we, we cannot make the mistake of thinking that Judas had no choice in what he did. Bible commentator William Mounts unpacks this. He said, it was, his, it was with his full consent, not against his will, that he ended up where he did. A life of disobedience and deception leads steadily on toward the predetermined end of destruction. Actions determine destiny. Scripture was fulfilled in the sense that God's principles are carried out in the consequences that inevitably flow from actions taken. Judas made his decision with Jesus. He chose in his sin to deny and ignore who he is and what he proclaimed, and that led to his destruction. But the Lord took this evil, sinful act of Judas and used it to fulfill the mission that Jesus Christ, his son, came to complete. A difficult but altogether incredible thing for us because we know Jesus' end was always the cross. His entire earthly life led up to his hands and feet being nailed to the wood and him hanging there, 
to take the full weight of the wrath of God, the punishment we deserved because of our sin. He died because, as we read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Which Judas himself experienced. He chose to live in his sin, which led to his own destruction and eternal death. But those who heed the warning of Judas, instead of living for themselves and their sinfulness, Romans 6.23 goes on, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are a part of the family of God, taken out of the world by God the Father, given as a gift to Christ Jesus the Son, then his sacrifice is for you. His death that Judas's sin got the ball rolling for takes the punishment that you deserved. His bloodshed covers you. His life takes the place of yours and the sin debt that you owed is paid in full. You can be free from your sin based on the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. And the words that Jesus prays at the beginning of verse 12 can be yours to claim forever. I keep every one of the people that have been given to me. None of them, none of the people who are truly mine will be lost. Jesus came. Jesus died so that I can be free from sin. That the power that once held me, the death and destruction I was once destined for, can be taken and covered and dealt with forever. That's why Jesus came and died. That's what Good Friday is all about. What Satan and Judas, his agent, meant for evil, what they thought was the decisive blow God turned on its head. Jesus' prayer reveals his purpose for me, that I would know his gospel, join his family, be free from sin, and as a result, be filled with joy. Jesus goes on, verse 13, he says, Now I am coming to you. Jesus knew that his time had come. He knew what lie ahead of him. He knew of the brutal torture, the injustice, He knew of the physical torment, the agony physically, the anguish he would experience. Jesus knew of the scorning and the mockery, the spit that would come on his face. He understood what was before him and that he would take the full weight of the wrath of God upon himself. The sins of the world being absorbed into him in his death. And he took it all. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did it all for you that his joy might be complete. Jesus did it all for you that your joy in him might be complete. Knowing all that was coming for him, Jesus 
still has his mind on those that he had been given. His mind is still on his disciples and on you and I. And so he prays, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. All that Jesus has prayed for, all that he has given to his disciples in the farewell discourse, the last moments that they would have together as they shared a meal together, all these things recorded so that you and I may have them. Jesus gives them all that we might know the joy of obeying the Father like Jesus did. Mounts' comments again are helpful and so powerful for us here. Joy is the experience of complete union with the redemptive purposes of God in history. For Jesus, it was the cross. For us, it may not be a wooden cross, but it will be death to self and whatever this may involve in our specific circumstances. Jesus prays that the joy he has found in obedience to the Father will be shared by all who follow his example. To see and hear and receive and believe in Jesus Christ is to recognize that I am called to obey him as he obeyed the Father. And to understand that no matter what I experience in my life, I can can experience unending joy in following him as he followed the Father. Jesus' prayer reveals his own purpose. And the realities of Jesus' mission can come to your life if you see these truths. If you see what he did. If you know what he endured for you. And if you come to him, committing to him, Jesus' prayer reveals his purpose for me, that I might know his gospel, join his family, be free from sin, and be filled with joy. This is for you today and every day, Christian, as you live in the reality of Jesus Christ crucified. This can be yours every day, unbeliever, If you bow before the crucified king, we live every day in the tension of this. Jesus Christ came. He lived. He died for your sin, for your brokenness, for your loneliness, for your past, present, and future. Will you see his purpose for you Will you die with him? Let me pray for us. Father, these words are are weighty and wonderful. The reality of, of what you have done for us out of your great love for us in sending your son to die a death we deserve is something that should never and can never be lost on us. So Father, don't let it be. With the reality of Christ crucified, again, at the forefront of our minds and before us today, help us to be people, like Paul said, who know nothing else but Jesus Christ crucified. Help us to see and believe these truths and live them out every day. I pray for those here who have not yet bowed the knee before you, Jesus. 
I pray that by your spirit moving and working through the power of your word, that you would call them to yourself. That they would see, that they would know and receive and choose to believe. For those of us whom this is already real and active, help us, Father, I pray, to bring about these realities to our lives every single day. You died so we may die with you. We may have life forever. We pray these things in your precious name, Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.